welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. As we uh, open our Bibles to Luke chapter 20, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. As I here make a public service announcement here to clean everything off well, not that I have anything against Pastor Weiler right here, but uh, folks, this is what we need to be doing. We need to be uh, protecting not only ourselves, some people think that it probably won't affect me because I'm young and strong. First, that's not necessarily true. Uh, It also affects uh, you and those who you engage with. So we want to encourage everybody to be safe and to uh, um, take care of themselves through this time. It's not going to be that long, God willing. And uh, we're going to continue on in our life of glorifying Christ. So we look at Luke chapter 20. I've titled this one, Resisting a True Testimony. Resisting a True Testimony. I'm going to read the first eight verses to start us off. On one of the days while Jesus was teaching... The people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned amongst themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you then not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Well, our last passage last week was Jesus cleansing the temple. The Gospel of Mark, if you you look at the account there of the cleansing of the temple, it tells us in chapter 11, verse 27, that Jesus and his disciples now are once again uh, coming to Jerusalem from Bethany. So when verse 1 says that uh, it was on one of the days, now we're most likely on Wednesday of the Passion Week. During this final uh, full day of teaching, before, before he shares the Passover meal with his disciples, uh, we observe numerous groups come together, they unite together, they draw together, uh, differing parties unite to challenge Christ. There will come, in this chapter, as we go through chapter 20 and chapter 21 of Luke, uh, we will see there will come chief priests, those were the Levites, There were scribes, which were the religious lawyers of their day. Elders, who were the representatives of the people. We will see Herodians, who belonged to the political dynasty of the time. There were Pharisees, who were the business elite. And the Sadducees, who were the social elite. 
Normally, these are in conflict with one another, but they can be united in one thing, and that is opposing the truth of Christ. Luke records in verse 20 that there were spies sent to monitor Jesus. In the next chapter, uh, uh, another conflict with the rich. And and tomorrow evening, we're going to see that even one of his own disciples betrays Jesus. Um, by the time Jesus is arrested uh, late tomorrow night, if we're on his calendar, his clock, even a slave, even, even a slave in Israel, a slave of the high priest, is going to join in the action. Uh, Friday, of course, the crowds will yell, crucify him, crucify him. In less than two days from now, Just two days, virtually all of Israel is going to rise up against Christ. They're going going to conspire together and coordinate together in an effort uh, to hand the the Son of God over to the, the Gentiles, the Roman soldiers for crucifixion. Just just imagine the stress that Christ must be under. Try to imagine a, a whole world. Uh, violently uh, confronting you, rising up against you, and at the same time then, yourself to rise up in the morning and go to the temple and preach the, the goodness of the gospel to those people. The goodness of God to them that there is now salvation offered through Christ. To preach the goodness of God, that God takes away the sin of the world. You know, just, just think, what, what kind of God is that that comes to a rebellious people with goodness, who offers his only son to an obstinate people who in response hate him when he sends his own son. That, that, by the way, is the next parable we'll see next week beginning in verse 9, parable of the vine growers. In his final defense, Jesus is going to utter these words to Pontius Pilate, I came to testify to the truth. That is Jesus' defense right there in a nutshell. This is also precisely why they killed him. Precisely why they killed him. Their problem is that they can't handle the truth. They don't want to know the truth. They are inherently, this is the truth, that mankind, man and woman alike, is inherently sinful, selfish beyond explanation, corrupt beyond recognition, deceitful and immoral, And the only way that anybody on the planet can be reconciled to God and have their sins forgiven is to uh, believe and trust in the work of God's Son, His only begotten Son. That is the only way to be saved. You know, mankind hates that kind of message. Uh, A message that tells them they can't come to God on their own or figure out a way of their own in order to be saved, but that you must trust only in what Christ has done. This is, however, the the gospel or good news. This is the good news that Christ preached. We've seen him state it multiple times uh, through the gospel of Luke and throughout his earthly ministry. Most recently in Luke chapter 18, verse 31, he stated the gospel, that there is forgiveness and eternal life offered to all who will believe in his name. Uh, We saw it in our scripture reading earlier In John chapter 1, verse 12, uh, to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, we are the children of God, who are not born of blood, nor of the will of man, nor any other will besides God. Only by the will of God. Um, Folks, this is an offensive truth 
This is an offensive truth that got Jesus hanged on a cross. He dared to declare publicly, you are all unrighteous. All of you are unrighteous. I, however, do my Father's will perfectly, and I am righteous, therefore, sinless Christ. Uh, Therefore, I am going to die on that cross for your sins in, in just two more days, if our chronology is right. And you are invited to spend eternity with me and my Father together in heaven if you will surrender yourselves and bow your knee and worship me. Now now think about that for a second. That's a bold claim by Jesus. That, that, That is a bold truth that he gives. Folks, that is the gospel that Christ preached. That is the truth of God's word. This is the biblical Christ whom we preach to you. That is our role as the church, to preach the gospel, for we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and to even the Greek. So if, so if you're hearing this, you're sitting at home, maybe you've tuned in, if you're hearing this for the first time and, uh, and, and wondering, what is this that I hear? Folks, this is the true testimony of God. This is what you find in Scripture. Uh, history shows that proclaiming this can get a man killed. That's what history tells us. Uh, man and woman in his, his or her natural state, sinful state, unregenerated, unredeemed state, doesn't receive this message very well. They, they don't like hearing this. It got Jesus killed. Uh, it got his apostles and many people from the early church killed. Uh, Christians around the globe today are still being martyred for proclaiming uh, this gospel message. And the reason for this is because man likes to view himself as kind and righteous and generous and and dignified and good looking. You know, we we look in the mirror and we see something really good. We we like what we see. We think we're a pretty good person. That is because we have a skewed perception of ourselves. Every one of us does. Uh, When we look in the mirror of God's righteousness, uh, that mirror being the law that uh, you shall not uh, blaspheme, you shall not have idols, you shall not steal, you shall not covet anybody else's stuff, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says, even if you've looked, looked upon a woman in lust, you've already committed adultery. We are murderers at heart. When we hate one another. This is the true reflection of who we are as, uh, as mankind. Unregenerate uh, before believing in Christ especially. Um, so before we can be saved. Before we can be saved from our sins. We've we got to clean off that mirror. Right? We've got to polish off that mirror. And look at ourselves rightly. In, in the mirror of God's truth. And we want to see ourselves the way that God sees us. Not the way that we measure one another, but the way that God truly sees us according to His holiness, His righteousness, and His honesty and truth. Um, We need to recognize, you know, really, we're just dirty, rotten sinners. We are dirty, rotten sinners who rightly deserve to go to hell. That is an offensive message. That'll get someone injured or worse. Uh, We all, every single one of us, have to receive the same forgiveness. Everybody's in the same boat. Um, We're not good people. We are not, by nature, good people. Jerry Robertson and I 
were uh, having a discussion last Sunday talking about our, our individual, our personal upbringings. We both enjoyed the, the benefit of very moral fathers. Um, he, he was a few years ahead of me, uh, Jerry. His dad was a highly respected businessman, very honest and dignified businessman. My dad was an honest farmer. We were taught to be truthful. Don't steal, don't cheat, don't get drunk, don't, don't date a girl in a way that she gets pregnant, don't take Jesus' name in vain, don't skip church, don't get caught, right? Jerry, being a few years ahead of me, his dad ran a business in an era where reputation was especially important among the people. Uh, it, it said a lot about you and how you ran a business in those days. My dad worked in a rural setting where everyone was expected to act neighborly, help out a friend, uh, pay our bills on time. Moral societies, moral societies, and we had good dads, great dads. Jerry's dad in particular was a member of what you've heard a lot probably if you're watching the news at all recently. Jerry's dad was a member of the great generation, perhaps referred to even as the greatest generator, generation, those who were born usually between 19, before 1927. My dad was born in 1930, just missed it. He was raised by that generation. But those, that generation is usually defined by those who were able to either serve in World War II, in one way or another, to enlist, or those who were courageous enough, even though they were too young, enlisted anyhow. And, and that was the great generation. That generation is great. Some people think, you know, what was so great about them? You know, could they dunk a basketball? You know, that, that's what, I, what the young generation today would want to know. Can they dunk a basketball? Can they throw a football? Just, just superficial things in comparison. The great generation had this. They suffered through a depression, the likes of which we haven't seen since and we hope that we don't again. The dirty 30s, they called them. Uh, they, they went through the Spanish flu, which was a catastrophic uh, pandemic that was in the, uh, about 1918, around there. They, they saw much death, that generation. They learned to cope with much loss and much death. World War II, as I said, the many that went off and fought to defend our freedoms. Uh, this generation was courageous. They loved their country. They died for their country. They served. They offered themselves to preserve a nation that they loved. Uh, these are people now that are in their early to upper 90s and beyond. In our congregation, I think, especially two that come to mind, John Sanford is one of those, served his country well. Gene Klein in that same group, and there's some others right bordering in there, where they understood because they were so closely knit with that great generation they understand, understood how important uh, the character of these people was. They were patriots. Um, when they returned from war, and when the economy started to recover, what they wanted, what these people wanted, was it was a stable marriage, a conservative house, a job they could get up for every day, healthy kids, three squares on the plate, uh, they, they wanted simple things. They wanted peace because they had fought through so much. Uh, folks, they achieved a great deal of it. They, they were a great generation. They, they came back, they, they learned to become self-sufficient. 
They learn to take care of themselves and their family and others. They learn to take care of others in their church who needed it. Um, They saved everything. They saved everything. You think back of that generation, my uh, uncle, great uncle, my dad's uncle, was uh, one on the farm who had saved five-gallon buckets of nails. And you might have heard me tell this story before. I asked dad as we were cleaning out the garage, I'm like, Nails that had been saved from old buildings, bent, and you'd have to straighten them to use them again. I'm like, Dad, did things get so bad that they couldn't afford nails? And he said, Son, you don't understand. You couldn't get nails. There was so little to be had. They saved everything. They saved everything. They would look at us, folks. And the reason I kind of do a sidebar to this is because that generation would look at eight weeks to um, stay home and take care of yourself and to do what's right and to, to love one another. Eight weeks to take care of others and, and, and your own family, to them that'd be nothing. That would be nothing. And it might go on longer than that. That's a parameter we're giving right now. Um, they would think this uh, about eight weeks and, and people needing assistance. They'd think, you mean you can't survive on your own for eight weeks? You haven't been of the most prosperous generation that's ever been on the planet, mine and those directly before, directly after me, all the, the pros, uh, prosperity that you lived through, and you haven't been able to save up even eight weeks. So, so it is a great lesson to learn from them. And what I want to, us to learn, and what we want to take home uh, just from this little sidebar today is, folks, we can do this, all right? We, we can do this. This is not too much. We need to come back again and, and, and come back to scriptural truth and to serve our country and to serve our neighbor. These are great things. We need to be able to take care of ourselves and save that we might, uh, in an emergency, we can take care of ourselves and stop asking the next generation that comes after us to pay off our debt. You know? So we need to do this. The great generation was great. They were moral. They were very good people. However, however, both Jerry Robertson's and my fears were that, that when we became Christians, when we finally understood the, the truth of the gospel, our fear was, do, does my dad recognize that he's a sinner? Does he understand that morality isn't everything, that, that Christ is more? Does he see that he needs a Savior? Well, Jerry, Jerry and I both kind of teared up. Um, does dad believe in his heart Instead, that he is somehow good, that he merits salvation, that he deserves it in some way because of how good that he has been. That's the question I want to address today. Uh, I personally didn't know at first. My my dad had never talked to me about Jesus in the gospel as I was growing up. Uh, That's evidence of sin right there, right? If you aren't talking with your children, your grandchildren, one another about the gospel of Christ, that's evidence of sin. Um, after a period of adjustment to my faith, that would be my dad's adjustment, adjustment to my faith. Bad mom's adjustment because we all kind of get a little bit overzealous when we first get saved. But after a period of adjustment and understanding, I asked dad. I approached him and I said, you know, why? Why didn't you talk to me about Jesus? And, and his answer was, he said, I, don't, I didn't know what to say. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't know. Um, I didn't know what to say. I didn't feel equipped myself to say, and and for the first time in my life, through his tears on that day, I saw my dad broken in conviction over sin. 
It's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing to be broken over conviction and, and to recognize that you need somebody to save you. There's nothing shameful about that. He spent the rest of his time on earth living in honor of Jesus Christ. He maintained his morality. I saw a passion of Christ, passion toward Christ in him, a passion for his church. He really loved his church. They were good to him all the way to the end. He displayed more generosity, spiritual courage than I had previously seen. Folks, that type of conviction of sin and transformation can only come about by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the gospel. Changes lives. Can take a generation, a good generation, and make them even better. That's what we need today is change in our lives. Um, Dad received God's truth. If you're wondering how you receive this, he received God's truth the same way I did by recognizing by God's unit of measure, he was not a righteous person. By God's unit of measure, I am not a righteous person. I am a sinner, and God's mercy saves us. His mercy saves us. This group, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders that confronted Jesus, they didn't want to hear any of that. What do you mean we're sinners? They, they did not like that. That's offensive. These folks are very religious people we're talking about here. Very religious. They wore fancy gowns and, and, and big hats. They, they were the big cheese spiritually in their generation. They too benefited from a great reputation in their community. They too lived in a, a moral society where sin was, was, uh, was, was seen as, as evil. It was there in a society where they felt and, and portrayed as if everything needed to be done right and always was done right. They, they would not confess their sin. They are convinced deep in their hearts, these Pharisees and scribes, convinced deep in their hearts that they are such good people. Just good people. A good, they were a good generation. They would see themselves as a great generation. Do you know what Scripture says about such people? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart of man is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? It's because we don't see ourselves rightly in the mirror. Um, they resisted the true testimony from Jesus. They resisted it. They resented it. They, that they were sinners destined for hell. In their minds, they were far too good for that. Um, they were exceedingly self-righteous. And, and as Jesus cleansed the temple... The day previous that we studied the last two Sundays, as Jesus cleansed the temple, preaching God's righteousness and exposing them, uh, exposing their sinfulness, their ears burned so badly that they wanted to kill him. They did not want to hear that. Um, Luke chapter 20, verse 1 says that on this day now, they confronted him. The next day, they confronted him. The, the Greek word, uh, uh, fistime, it, it carries a connotation of a coordinated attack. This is a combined effort of these groups. It suggested they, they pounced on Jesus. This is just the first of multiple times on this day that Jesus is going to be ambushed. They, they said to him in verse 2, 
A lot like they did with John the Baptist, only here they're looking at the Son of God. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or, or who is the one who gave you this authority? They, they didn't like, the religious leaders didn't like people circumventing their uh, sphere of authority. So they're asking in a sense, who gave you the right to preach this? You know, who ordained you? In, in fact, their underlying motive is even more sinister than that. In that they are attempting to entice Jesus into acknowledging that his authority comes directly from God. That's what they wanted him to say. Therefore, he would be claiming to be equal to God. In fact, that is the charge by which they will condemn him in just two more days following his arrest. We'll see that in Luke chapter twenty-two, verse uh, Luke twenty-two, verse seventy-one. This is the charge by which they condemn him. Jesus isn't quite ready. He isn't quite ready. He's going to eat the Passover meal with his disciples tomorrow night. Being God, Jesus decides when, where, and how they will get him. How he will die. So so he confounds them. He confounds them for another 36 hours. He He isn't trying to evade their question when he does this. Don't look at it that way. What he does is he delays his arrest by forcing them to evade the truth, the truth that they so hate. They're going to be forced to either acknowledge him or evade it. They take the latter. The truth, it, it utterly confuses them, confounds them. It, it, it stops them in their tracks. The, the truth, folks, we need to remember this as Christians. The truth is always our best defense. It's always our best defense. Uh, this approach served Martin Luther quite well. The old reformer, during his trial at the Diet of Worms, when he was on trial before the Catholic Church. See, the Catholic Church couldn't go to him and ask, he's like, well, who ordained you? Luther would turn around and said, well, you did. So they couldn't do that. Instead, they asked, by what authority, Luther, are you saying these things? What authority did you possess to, to nail these 95 theses to the wall and then circulate these charges that you have? And of course, Luther, being only a man... He appealed to the clear testimony of Scripture. The clear testimony of Scripture. He said, if I have erred, show me. If I have erred, show me. What does the Bible say, is what Luther was arguing. And it so thwarted, or at least dulled their spear of attack, that that they were basically um, unable to do anything at that point. Luther was popular with the people. They, they weren't ready for having to defend their own position from Scripture, which would have been impossible. And uh, anyhow, it dulled it enough, though they did bring charges and, and seek his arrest later, he had far since escaped, and he lived a natural lifespan. The truth confounds the enemy. Authority, authority by which we preach, authority by which... This church preaches, or any gospel-centered, true-believing Christian church preaches, it's established in the truth, the truth that is contained from God's Word. Jesus, he doesn't have to appeal to anyone or anything for authority. His authority is established in who he is, his identity, and what is true. Jesus is the authority. That's a capital A. He is, he is the Son of God, uh, the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, scripture says, in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So being God in the flesh, Christ doesn't have to defer to any human authority. 
All this really frustrated those people who opposed him, as he would appeal to truth. But announcing he is God at this point would only get him killed, a little premature. So Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? You want to know the source of my authority. Answer this question. Now remember at this time, they're surrounded by large crowds for Passover, large crowds of people in the temple, thousands of Jews, most of whom accepted John the Baptist as a true prophet of God. They, they, they adored John the Baptist. Christ was not evading their question, but he was rather answering it for them. This, this was a common tactic, by the way, very common tactic in ancient rabbinic Judaism, that when the students would ask their teacher a question, that the teacher would respond to them with another question, uh, prompting them to think deeper and to discover the truth by thinking deeper. Um, What's really funny is that while they're hoping to ensnare Jesus, hoping to trap him, that suddenly and unexpectedly they found themselves trapped. And at the same time, while Jesus responded to them with another question, uh, Jesus asserts his role above them as their teacher. And, and everybody surrounding them is watching this. You know, folks, th- this was humiliating for the priests and the scribes who were supposed to be experts in everything religious. Jesus tells them, So you want to know the source of my authority? Identify the source of John the Baptist's authority, and you will have your answer. Identify that source, you will have your answer. So the the priests called a sidebar, a side huddle. It says that they reasoned amongst themselves and saying, well, if we say from heaven, Jesus will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Folks, they're really stuck. They, they are really stuck. If they say that John the Baptist's authority was from God in heaven, Jesus will respond, Why then didn't you believe John's testimony? Well, think about it for a second. What was John's testimony? Right? First he came, Luke 3, verse 3, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John told these same people that are confronting Jesus now uh, that you are a brood of vipers, a brood of vipers who needs to repent. So his first, John the Baptist's first testimony is that you need to repent. That means believe that you're a sinner, recognize you're a sinner, and uh, be baptized. Pharisees said, not me. No, no, not me. As a group, now there are individuals within the group that, that bucked this trend, but as a group, they did not believe that they were sinners. They wouldn't recognize their sin. They were self-righteous. So Luke chapter 7, verse 30 tells us that they rejected the baptism of John. This group rejected the baptism. So number one, they refused to recognize personal sin. Didn't want to acknowledge their sinners. They saw themselves as moral elites, a great genera- generation who always did what was right. 
Sinners, they felt, were other people. You ever, you ever caught yourself in that? You, you, you get thinking about what's right and wrong, and, and you look around, and it's like, well, that other person's the problem. They're the problem. It isn't me that's the problem. It's everybody else that's the problem. Now you've got a problem because we're all the problem. This is the way the, these religious leaders were, though. Everybody else was a sinner, not them. What was the second part of John's testimony? The second part is that he was a voice crying in the wilderness. Make the path straight for the Lord. Uh, pointed everybody directly to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Well, acknowledging sin, that they were sinners, and Christ as their only hope of salvation, boy, that's, that's completely out of consideration for these folks. That, that is not happening. Uh, they couldn't could not reply that John's baptism was from heaven. That's out of the question. Uh, Their only other option was to propose that John the Baptist was somehow a fraud. Follow me? What he was saying wasn't true. That doesn't work. That will not work at all. The crowds surrounding them, the thousands of people surrounding them, were convinced that John was a true prophet. And these same people are probably still furious, by the way, at Herod, who had recently had John the Baptist killed, who had had a martyr. So if the priests and the scribes were to say that John the Baptist was a fraud, it would even look as if they were siding with Herod. And the people were very upset with that. The crowd would stone them. By their own admission in the text, the crowd would stone them. Think about how recalcitrant, how resistant to the truth these people needed to be. Think about this. The priests and the scribes. Jesus declared in John 5, verse 32, the ministry of John the Baptist testified to me. In John 5, verse 37, Jesus says, Scripture says, the Father testified to me. That was when he was baptized and and a voice came out of heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In John 5, verse 39, Jesus said, These scriptures that you read, they testify about me. In John 10, verse 25, he says, The works that I do testify about me. In John 15, verse 26, The Holy Spirit, whom they blasphemed, by the way, the Holy Spirit, Christ says, testifies to me. And in John, uh, John chapter 18, verse 37, he says, The truth testifies to me. Look at all that evidence. And he also said to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Everyone who is of the truth hears Jesus' voice. Rather than accept, however, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they instead resisted all of this. They resented all of this, the reality that they were unrepentant sinners and how all this evidence about Jesus, all this testimony is true. They rejected all of it. Folks, I hope this does not describe you today. I, I, I pray and hope that this does not describe you today. These religious leaders, they, they called for a holy huddle to figure out how they're going to respond. Verse 5 says that they reasoned amongst themselves how they were going to make this work. Boy, old John Calvin makes a profound observation concerning these men in the huddle. 
He says this, Here we perceive the impiety of the priests. They do not inquire what is true, nor do they put uh, the question to their own consciences to reflect on what is true. And they are so base, says Calvin, as to choose uh, rather to shuffle than to acknowledge what they know to be true, that their tyranny may not be impaired. In this manner, all wicked men, though they pretend to be desirous of learning, you get that? They pretend to be desirous of learning. They shut the gate of truth if they feel it to be opposed to their wicked desires. Jesus stood opposed to their, in the way of their wicked desires. They wanted him out of the way. He, he taught the truth. Good quote by Calvin. Wouldn't you love to be able to put one of those boom microphones, one of those long ones like they use in football? Wouldn't you love to be able to record what was going on in that huddle at that time? Stick it right in there underneath it, record that conversation. Think about this, what they might be saying. Say, hey, Bob, what do you think we should say? Well, I don't know. I don't know what we should say. Uh, perhaps we should uh, just say this doesn't matter. Maybe we should just dismiss this. I don't know. Do you have any ideas? What difference does it make anyhow? Right? We need to decide what will get us out of this mess. Because all these people standing around us at the temple are looking at us. They wanted to know how to get out of this mess. And, and there's one genius in the group. There's a genius there who says, you know what? This is what we'll tell them. We don't know where it came from. Wow. Wisdom there. So, so one of them turns out of the huddle and speaks for the group, or maybe they all speak and says, we don't know. What an answer. Folks, people have been using ignorance of the truth to excuse testifying uh, before Congress ever since, right? I don't know. I can't remember. Where did it come from? I don't know. And, and nobody actually believes them. Nobody really believes them. But it does allow these men to escape for just one more day. It allows them to persist, uh, escape the truth for one more day. We don't know. We don't know. Is that how you're coping with your spiritual condition? When asked what you think about the claims that Jesus made, is your response from your own huddle just, well, we don't know, I don't know? You know, folks, I read a small portion of a fairly brief book called The Gospel of John to you earlier. I mean, it's not a huge book. Actually, you could read The Gospel of John uh, in about two evenings, about an hour and, a, hour and a half each evening, read through it. If we'd turn the TV off, and sit there and just read the truths about Christ and the Gospel of John. You could do it in a couple nights. Honestly, assess those claims that are made in the Gospel of John. Use a highlighter to identify the claims made by Jesus about himself and claims by others made of Jesus. I would read it, honestly, I would read the Gospel of John as if eternity between heaven and hell hangs in the balance. That's because it does. It does. Um, this, the truth uh, will determine where you spend uh, eternity. With an honest search of your own soul, just your own soul, ask yourself, read the Gospel of John, ask yourself 
if you can continue on to the next day, uh, every day, day after day, saying, I just don't know. I just don't know. Folks, you'd better know. You had better know. You've got to know. Because in John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You've got to know. You've got to acknowledge. You've got to make a determination uh, as to who Christ is and, and stop just relying on, well, I don't know. I haven't decided on that. I'll think about it another day. Folks, this life is not that long. You, you have no guarantee. I have no guarantee that we're going to wake up tomorrow. You know, there, there is a time for salvation and the time to, to trust in Christ and stop saying, I don't know, is today. Today is the day of salvation. You know, I don't pretend to know what God is doing through this coronavirus. I know that He's going to bring glory to Himself. I know that people are going to be saved. His church is going to continue until He returns. Um, if there's nothing else to do while sitting at home, perhaps with all this time we have, God is calling you to take a time out. Get in your own little huddle and figure this stuff out. Um, it might be done alone with your Bible in your apartment. It may be with your entire family sitting in the, in, in the living room. But you better get in your huddle and figure this stuff out. Now is the time. It's in times when these, uh, like these, when crises you know, demand that we be still. And, and know that He is God. You know, that's, that's from uh, Psalm 46 verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. And, and that is a passage. I've got some of it with me here. It's especially maybe uh, nostalgic for this time. Especially applicable to this time. In that psalm, it declares this. When you think about the trials economically, health-wise, physically, socially that we're going through right now, that is a psalm that declares that God is our refuge and our strength. A very present help in our troubles, it says. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change and, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Folks, we aren't going to fear. That same uh, passage is, is made during a time of uproar, of, applies to a time of uproar. It says that the nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. There were, this was applicable when kingdoms hold, hang in the balance. When they are tottering, are they going to survive or are they not going to survive? And it says that God raised His voice and the earth melted because He's in control of all this. He's in control of everything. And it says, Come behold the works of the Lord who has caused desolations on the earth. Now grapple with that one. That God has allowed and even caused desolations to occur for His glory. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. And then Scripture says this, Cease striving. Stop striving. Or it can be translated, Be still and know that I am God. Folks, that's where we are today. Be still and know that He is God. And the result is, Psalm 46, verse 10, I will be exalted among the nations, says God. I will be exalted on the earth. Bow your knee now, or you will have to bow it later.
Folks, in your huddle, you've, you've got to determine for yourself. It's not up to anyone else. It's not up to us here. It's not up to your grandma. It's not up, up to anybody else. You have got to determine who is Christ. Who is he? Is he precisely who he says he is? Am I, you'll have to ask yourself, am I willing to bow to all of this evidence of who he is? displayed before me in in Scripture and in the lives of Christian men and women everywhere, in the Gospels, uh, displayed for centuries as a Christian testimony and through the Apostles. Am I going to yield to the divine calling of the Holy Spirit? Are you going to yield to the divine calling of the Holy Spirit that says, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead and then you will be saved? Have you done that? Have you done that? Or are you going to continue making excuses and say, I don't know. I don't know. Don't resist when you break the huddle. Standing before Jesus and among the people and say, well, I don't really know. That's not an acceptable answer, folks. To such people... Who will not confess him as Lord, Jesus owes nothing. And to this group resisting Christ in our passage, he says, Nor will I tell you what authority I do these things. Folks, there is a danger to continued resistance, a danger um, uh, where it can come to a point where God and his Holy Spirit uh, eventually say, I've got nothing more to say to you. You don't want to be in that situation. And God, as Jesus said here, I'm not going to debate with you anymore. I've given you enough time. I've lived three years of my life with you. You've seen all of the evidence. And I'm not going to debate anymore the truth. And in confronting Christ on this day, these priests and scribes and elders were not making an honest attempt for a genuine inquisition for facts. They were mounting an opposition to him. So Jesus did not cast the pearls before the swine. He said, I've got nothing to say. This means that some, from the beginning of the message, they come just to argue, just to resist, just to doubt. These don't genuinely genuinely want to learn anything about Christ from the Bible. And in an act of judgment to these, Jesus says, I have nothing further to say to you. Our conversation is done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we do look today at our circumstances, our surroundings, the place we live, the families we have, the nation in which we reside, Father, um, all these conditions are a result uh, of your uh, design, your sovereign plan for us. And Lord, as we go about our lives uh, running back and forth, Father, that uh, to and fro and jumping back and forth between things that are really superficial in value, buying stuff, purchasing, enjoying our lives, Lord, uh, there was a point where we needed to slow down for a minute 
and get a, get a restart. You know, turn off the computer, let it boot back up again. And think about what we are really facing here. Not in, in our coronavirus situation, but in the future. What eternal uh, circumstances are we facing? And Father, as we pray as a church, we hope, uh, uh, we pray that everyone listening here today is going to see this as an opportunity to get back to the Bible, to get back to Christ, to, to acknowledge that, that you are the one true God. And Lord, as we, as we um, consider this time that we have, let us use it for your glory, that the gospel will be preached and whatever happens, happens, Lord. I ask too that there would be another great generation that's not only great because they were morally good people, not only great because they took personal responsibility, uh, not only great uh, because they loved and defended their country. Those are good things. But we pray there'd be a generation now that would rise up and be great because they honor the name of Jesus Christ. Father, bless your holy name and bless the name of your Son.